The following message was given by Nick Kidwell, the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. Good morning. My name is Nick Kidwell. For those who don't know, I'm the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church, and so glad you're with us this morning. Um, I love... How obedient you all are. Jeff, Jeff didn't say to greet each other, so you all sat down very promptly and you were looking forward. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and it's fun to see the waddling moms hop off the stage too. So, <laughs> We are grateful for the mothers who are here with us. Um, it is a gift that God has given that mothers and fathers have the roles that they do, and each of us have mothers and fathers in our lives. You can't exist without one, and so we're thankful for them. But we are aware. We know that these days also bring with them memories of lost uh, mothers that we love or lost children that we had or children we've not had that we wish we did. And so we recognize that and are with you and praying with you even in the midst of sadness uh, that can come on these days as well. But grateful for the moms out there. And even just to recognize there's a reality of spiritual motherhood. So if you no longer have children in your home or you never had children, the Lord still has a role for you to be mothers to other women in the church, younger women in the church. And um, so thank you for doing so. I also just wanted to take a moment. I, I had the Lord put on my heart. You know, as Kathy was reading, and thank you, Kathy, for reading the word for us, and just her being affected so visibly, emotionally, by God's word, it just impressed on me. I'm grateful for moments like that, where we're reminded, this is the word of the Lord. And I was thinking about um, Nehemiah, and in the book of Nehemiah, uh, Israel has been exiled, and they are distraught. And Nehemiah begins this process of rebuilding the, the wall around Jerusalem. But in the process, one of the things that happens is God's word is read aloud. And it talks about in Nehemiah chapter 8, I, I encourage you to, to read it. But they bring out the word of the Lord and they stand up and they read it before all of the people. And all of the people are shouting, Amen, Amen, and lifting their hands and bowing their heads and worshiping the Lord. It says, They read from the book the law of God clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And then it says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy for the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the Lord. We have the words of God here, and it strikes at our heart, it affects our emotions, and that's a wonderful thing. So, Kathy, I'm so grateful just for that example of the Spirit at work in you, that you're affected by God's Word, and that's my prayer for us, that we would be affected by God's Word as we read it. Um, it's a gift that we have, which is why we gather on Sundays to hear the preaching of God's Word and to come together. And like it says here in Nehemiah, they, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. We gather together for the preaching of God's Word to help us all understand God's Word better. I, I stand up here and I preach, but believe me, this week, this week has been me praying and seeking the Lord that I might understand what God's Word says for us. And then it's my job to help all of us come along in that process of understanding God's Word. Because we can read it and the Lord impacts our hearts, but there's riches for us to mine together as we 
as we seek to understand God's Word for ourselves. So, I'm excited this morning for us to do that. We're continuing on in our Matthew series to give a recap of where we've been. Matthew, as we've said, he is a a careful curator of these stories from Jesus' life. He's crafted the account of Christ's life in very specific ways. He's less concerned with precise chronology of events, and he's more concerned with pulling together events to emphasize themes and promote lessons about the Lord. And what we see from the very first words of this book is that Matthew sets out to make clear for us that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the Christ, the descendant of David, the promise of Abraham, the seed of Eve who was to come and usher in the kingdom of God and bring long-awaited peace to the people of Israel. Matthew, throughout his gospel, has already helped us to understand this in many ways. He's shown us how the stories of the Old Testament all prefigured and pointed towards Christ who was to come. He showed us how Christ's birth fulfilled many prophecies. He showed us God audibly proclaim His favor in Christ at Christ's baptism. He shows us Christ's perfection as He faithfully endures temptation in the wilderness. He shows us Jesus as the authoritative teacher. That's what we just finished in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, the authoritative teacher, not just proclaiming God's message, but in fact speaking on behalf of God, in essence proclaiming himself to be one with God. Well now, as Jesus comes down from the mountain, from this Sermon on the Mount, Matthew wants to reveal yet another angle of the glorious character and nature of Christ. So he moves now from focusing on Jesus' teaching and preaching ministry And he highlights the great signs and wonders that accompanied all that he proclaimed. So open with me, if you would, Matthew chapter 8. We'll be reading verses 1 to 17. Let me pray for us as we head into that. Father, we ask that you be with us this morning, just as you struck the hearts of the people of Israel in the reading of the law by Ezra and Nehemiah. Father, we ask that you would strike our hearts this morning. Lord, you have given us your very words, and we pray that they would be clear, that they would be made known, that we would understand them in our hearts and in our minds, Lord, and that we would be affected and we would be changed. And in particular this morning, I just pray that your words would be a comfort and that we would see your generous, loving heart that you have uh, towards your people and your creation. We pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. 
But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I, come to, I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the utter darkness. In the place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, he took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. This is the word of the Lord. What a passage this is. What a Savior we have. He took our illnesses and He bore our diseases. Over the next two chapters, Matthew presents for us three blocks of narratives that contain three miracles each interspersed with calls to follow Christ. These miracles, as we will see, have been chosen to highlight the authority that Christ has over all forms of brokenness and evil in this world. And the first of these three blocks, which we just read today, hits home the reality that Christ is the long-awaited Messiah, that He has unparalleled authority, and He is eager to receive all who approach Him in faith. So our plan this morning will be to explore what we learn about Christ in these narratives, and it's good, and then we're going to look at what these stories teach us about how we ought to approach Him. So the first and most obvious thing that we see in these stories about Jesus is that He has the power to heal. This is the main unifying theme of these three miracles, and it is Matthew's goal that we understand this. He makes that clear in verse 17. When he says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. That's paraphrasing Isaiah 53, which Kathy read for us this morning. It depicts the Messiah who was to come. Well, Matthew clearly sees Jesus' power to heal as further confirmation that Jesus was and is the Messiah. Now, a few quick things I want to say before we go any deeper into our discussion today, first, this will not be nor could it be a comprehensive dive into the topic of healing. However, it does give us an opportunity to speak to it. As a church, we believe that the Lord, as we will see, has the power to heal and that He continues to do so today. Liberal critical scholarship of the Scriptures often says that these bits of the stories are the ones that were made up. Other things are true, but these are the things that were made up, that became legend over time, that were added. Anything that has the whiff of 
miracle or the miraculous simply cannot have happened. Well, such a view is incorrect. You can no more separate Jesus from his miracles than you can separate hydrogen from oxygen to make water. You pull them apart, you no longer have water. You take Jesus from his wonder-working power, you no longer have Jesus. It just does not work. These stories aren't legends that developed over time. Just as we've been discussing the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the greatest miracle of all time is at the core and center of Christianity. So too are all of the miracles and His wonder-working power. They're inseparable from the nature of His being. And that's the whole point. The miracles, the signs, the wonders, they affirm and they magnify who Jesus is. Which leads us to another thing to note quickly here at the beginning. Though we as a church family believe that Jesus did the things recorded of him, all these innumerable acts and more, I love the book of John that says the books in all the world couldn't contain the stories if we wrote them down. And though, as we will discuss later, we believe that the Lord still does heal miraculously, that we should be expectant and eager to see Him do so, the center of our message, the center of our faith, the core of the gospel is not Jesus' ability to heal diseases on this earth. In the book of Acts, we read of Simon the magician. He was a secular wonder worker. Well, when he encountered the apostles and he saw the power that they had, We're told that he believed in Christ and was baptized. He burned all of his magic books. However, it became clear that what enamored him most was not the message of the gospel itself. What enamored him most was the power that could come through the Holy Spirit. He wanted to be able to work the miracles like the apostles, but he was only interested in that power for power's sake. Well, this is not how we are to view the miracles of Christ. We don't, like Simon the magician, want to be enamored just by power to the detriment of Christ himself. Matthew makes clear here the main point, not the only point, but the main point of these healings of the miraculous signs and wonders is that we would know and see that Jesus is the Lord so that we might believe in him and be saved. That's the point. Physical healing, though wonderful, is not our greatest need. Any healing on this earth is simply putting a Band-Aid on a festering wound that cannot be remedied. All of our earthly bodies are going to wear out one day. What we need most, what the world around us needs most is the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ given through faith and through the repentance of sin. So, as we consider today the Lord's power to heal and His desire to do so, we approach it with a desire to see the Lord move for His glory's sake, that He would make His name known and that people would be saved. So with that as our basis, laying that groundwork, let's marvel together as we see that Jesus does have the power to heal. I remember reading some cheeky internet comment one time. I don't remember the exact phrasing of it, so to whoever the internet troll was that wrote it, I'm sorry, I'm not quoting you correctly. Uh, 
but it went something like this. Modern medicine is the greatest miracle of all. Science has healed far more people than Jesus ever did. Now, this comment obviously flows from one who does not follow Christ, but I think that there is a way in which we can all, in subconscious ways, believe something similar. We may love the Lord, we may believe what He says in theory, but I imagine that I'm not the only person in this room who can have an underlying skepticism at times about the Lord's power to heal. I know I should pray for that person in their illness. I know I can pray. I do believe God's there. But in my heart, I can question if the Lord really can or if He really does have the power, if He's really listening to me. Well, Matthew wants to help our skeptical hearts and illuminate for us what Christ declares at the end of this gospel that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. Jesus has the power to do all things. And these three stories remind us of that by presenting to us these three people in very desperate situations. First, we see a leper. Most of you likely know, but leprosy was and is a horrific disease. It ravages the body. It causes the breakdown of your skin. It creates sores and boils. It leads to deformation of your body parts. It messes with your nose and your hands. It also messes with the nervous system. One of the biggest problems is you can't feel anything, so you get injured all the time because you don't know that your body's in danger. Well, this was such a dreaded disease for which there was really no known cure. The only solution was exile. Lepers were despised by society. And they were forced to live alone outside of the community. It was a disease that not only ravished the body, but it left a person in total societal banishment. Desperate place to be. We see the centurion. This would have been a Gentile military captain. A man of stature and rank. And we see here that his servant is lying paralyzed at home. It's safe for us to assume that whatever this disease was, it was very severe. Though we don't know this for certain, it's likely that this man would have pursued other avenues of assistance for his servant before arriving here at Christ. It would have been strange for this Gentile commander of stature to have had his first medical stop be this itinerant Jewish preacher <laughs> named Jesus. So it's very likely he recognized there was nothing that could be done for this servant and he was desperate. But either way, we know for certain that this was a terrible, paralyzing, untreatable illness that had seized someone very important to him. And then we see Peter's mother-in-law. Not as much is said about her. We don't know the severity of her fever, but we do know that even the simplest of illnesses packed much more of a punch to the ancient person than they do today. The internet troll wasn't wrong. Modern medicine has healed many, and it is a marvelous thing. So back then, there were many more situations where you were very aware of your need for a miracle. So we see these three people facing illnesses that seem untreatable, and in steps Jesus. Jesus, who is the great physician. Jesus, who is mighty and powerful to save. 
Jesus doesn't whip out his medical bag. He doesn't prescribe any pills. He simply, through his touch, by his will, and at his word, heals and cleans each and every one of these people in need. And it isn't a half healing or some small improvement. It's total recovery. The leper is so clean that he can go and present himself to the priest. The centurion's servant is healed at that very moment. And Peter's mother-in-law recovers and is so well that she immediately gets up and starts serving the household. Jesus is the Lord of all creation. We're told in Colossians that he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Christ here is only showing a drop in the bucket of what he's able to do. He created the world. He created the universe. Every particle is held together and in submission to Him. Of course He can heal. Of course He can. In fact, no one is ever healed of anything apart from Him. One of the problems with the internet comment is that it forgets science is not outside the Lord's jurisdiction. The only reason we can test medicines, create them, and see them effective is because the Lord has allowed it. The Lord has created a majestic and quite fantastical universe that we live in. But He works through laws and principles and order, which means He's made ways that we can manipulate creation for good. That doesn't take away from His power. We should marvel at what the Lord has given us for our good. The Lord heals through the miraculous and the seemingly mundane. Though, again, I think if we all had eyes to see as we should, we'd realize there's not a single thing in this world that is mundane. It's amazing the world that we live in. And Jesus still heals through both of those avenues today. I've heard countless testimonies of people who were told they could never have children, who were told they had months to live, who were told they couldn't walk again, hear again, see again, whose hearts had stopped beating, whose bodies lay limp, and who, to the astonishment of all around them, including their physicians, reverted course, and not because of some scientific breakthrough, but because the name of the Lord was called upon. That happens. And if you don't believe so, either you haven't haven't heard about it or you choose to ignore it. But we can't deny it. This is what the Lord does because all things are in subjection to Him. All things are under His feet. When your medicine takes effect, that's the Lord. When your antibiotics do their trick, that's the Lord. And when a man hopelessly diseased miraculously stands up free from all contagion, that's the Lord. Jesus has the power to heal. Whatever you're facing and dealing with today, Jesus is greater and he invites you to come to him. Now we will speak later. We know that he does not always heal. We can't presume upon that and the Lord's ways are best. But that shouldn't prevent us from coming to him and knowing that he can. And that takes us to the second thing we see about the Lord. He welcomes all. 
Let's return for a minute to these three people and see how not only did they face desperate medical situations, but they also were in some ways marginalized or outcast. The leper, this is obvious. This man was completely despised and feared by society. The centurion, for the Jewish person, the Gentile was an outsider. The Gentile was unclean. In fact, a good Jew knew they shouldn't even set foot in a Gentile's home. And not only was this a Gentile coming to Jesus, but he was bringing to Jesus the need of his servant, one of society's lowest on the ladder. And then we have Peter's mother-in-law. Women were not the power holders in society. They certainly were often viewed on a lower status than men, not just in practical matters, but in value and worth and in their benefit to society. So here we see three people, as we've said, three desperate people and three people whose society, whether Roman or Jewish, in some way overlooked, marginalized, or in the case of the leper, outright rejected. So how then does the Lord view these people when they come and approach him? Jesus is precious, and he welcomes them. It's marvel at the Lord's response. The leper approaches Jesus. Such an approach already would have been cause of revulsion for many. If you saw a leper coming towards you, you ran. You didn't even just stay put. You didn't go towards him. You got out of the way. But that's not Christ. The leper approaches him, kneels down before him and says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. This, if you will, so the leper saying, look, I know that I shouldn't be near you. I know you shouldn't be interacting with me. But if you're willing to do this, please, please do so. And what does the Lord do? It says he stretches out his hand and he touched him. This would have been unthinkable. Not only to the Jews, but to anybody. Touching a diseased and unclean leper, unimaginable. You run, you don't approach, yet Jesus welcomes him, and Jesus touches him, and Jesus heals him. A healing that would then allow this man, through the process outlined in verse 4, to re-enter into society. That's what that taking the offering to the priest, that was all part of getting someone reacclimated back to society, proving that, in fact, this disease was gone. I'm convicted by this example. How many times have I quickly moved past someone who seems strange or dirty or unhealthy? Just yesterday. I almost wrote this in and I didn't. Well, I'm going to say it now. Just yesterday, I was walking in to Wawa. And I don't know what was going on. There was some police and there was a man there who clearly hadn't showered for a while. And I go in through the entryway and it smells in there. And I went through and I made sure not to go back out that way when I left. That's how we react. It's not how the Lord reacts. Jesus welcomes all. Then we see the centurion come to Jesus and recognize that at least in Jesus' world, this Gentile centurion should not have a place he approaches and says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And then we see Jesus respond in our ESV translation. It says, I will come and heal him. Now, I actually think, this is why it's good sometimes to read different translations of the scriptures as they translate. 
I think the NIV captures a little better what Jesus' response is here. He's actually posing more of a rhetorical question, saying, shall I come and heal him? So he's, he's actually asking the man, are you asking me, a Jewish teacher, to come and take part in your Gentile affairs, to come to your home and, and heal this servant, to defile myself for you? Is that what you're asking? He's, he's, he's turning this on this man to say, do you know what you're asking? Is this what you're asking? And that makes sense because the response to Jesus, what our ESV says, I will come and heal him, the man's response is, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come. He's answering Jesus' question. He says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. No, no, I'm not saying that, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. He says, look, I know that I'm an unclean Gentile. I don't deserve to have you come to my house. It's shameful for me to even ask this of you. Yet what is Jesus' response? Does he say, you're right, you shouldn't be asking me. Why are you wasting my time, you godless Gentile? No, he marvels at this man's faith. This man knows that the Lord will listen to him. And he grants his request, and he heals this man's servant at his word. And then we see Jesus compassionately come and touch the dying mother-in-law, proclaiming even further that it's not just men who can come to him, it's not... It's women. It's not just Jews who can come to him, but it's Gentiles. It's not just the socially acceptable or the healthy that he will entertain, but he welcomes all. He invites the outcast, the lame, the weak, the needy. And it's not just that he entertains them and us or puts up with them, but he invites them to be a part of his kingdom. If they place their faith and trust in him, verses 10 to 12 this would have shocked his Jewish hearers. He's essentially saying that it's only through faith, which we'll discuss in a minute, that one can be part of the kingdom of God and that people will come from far and from wide, from every unclean Gentile country on this globe and take part in the kingdom of God. Whereas those who are just resting on the lineage of Abraham, those who should have been sons of the kingdom of God, they will be in the place of outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Lord doesn't just tell us He will entertain our needs for a minute. He welcomes us to come to Him and to recline at His table, and His table is full of sweet goodness and provision. So if you're here, any of us know Jesus invites you to come to Him. Your age doesn't matter, your race doesn't matter, your gender doesn't matter, your social status doesn't matter, your health, your wealth, you name it, it does not matter. The Lord invites you to come to Him. He can forgive any sin, He can cleanse any stain, He can heal any disease, He can carry any burden. If we come before Jesus with a heart postured in humility like the people we see here, we can be certain our Lord will extend His gracious love and compassion to us. Amen. He's not stingy. And that's the last thing we're going to identify about Christ in this passage. Not only does He have the power to heal, not only does He welcome all to come, but He desires to heal Many people have a view of God as some angry tyrant sitting up in the clouds, eager and waiting for someone to throw his lightning bolt at. 
Well, nothing could be further from the truth. When Israel was brought out of Egypt by God, they had been graciously saved by God. Yet they quickly fell away from Him and gave themselves over to idolatry, worshiping the golden calf, which you may remember that story. Yet God still met with Moses, and despite the people's rebellion, declared about himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, I was tempted to stop the verse right at forgiving iniquity and sin, but I didn't because that wouldn't be giving us the verse in context. God is a God who is holy, who is righteous, and who, because of our sinfulness, really can't, apart from the saving, mediating work of Christ, welcome us to His presence. We all have spurned His name and failed to live up to His glory. He's right and just and good to uphold justice and bring about consequences for sin. However, notice what this says. He starts with, I'm slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, showing love for thousands of generations and forgiving sin. It's only after this, does He say, He will not clear the guilty. Our God is incredibly patient with us. We're told elsewhere in the scriptures that he does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. We're told he doesn't long for anyone to perish. We're told that he wept for his friend Lazarus who died. We see Christ look around at the people and he sees them as helpless sheep and he has compassion. He dies on the cross at the hands of of a hateful world, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. God is not an angry tyrant eager to strike us down. He's a gracious Father, a loving friend eager to draw us close. The Scriptures tell us God is love. It doesn't tell us God is hate or God is wrath. God can hate sin and his enemies, and pour wrath on them, but those are only the right outworkings of love and mercy in action. If you love your child, but don't discipline them, that isn't love. If you love your spouse, but don't stop someone who's coming to attack them, then I would question your affection. The heart of Jesus, the heart of God, is beautiful. From the very beginning, we see a creative, wonderful, Playful, majestic, holy, fierce, patient, and generous God. A God who punishes wickedness, but has ever been planning for and extending an offering of mercy. Notice that it says he doesn't pardon sin, yet it also says he forgives. So what does that mean? Well, it means that he makes a way to be pardoned. He makes a way to be forgiven and that it's through Jesus Christ. But apart from Christ, he will not pardon And in fact, he never really completely pardons because Christ does pay the penalty for our sins. So you feel the pardon, you receive the pardon, but Christ felt the pain. This is the heart of our God, one who's willing to die for us. 
Though he may punish to the third and fourth generation, he extends mercy to the thousandth. There's a reason that those numbers are so drastically different. So it shouldn't surprise us then when this leper comes kneeling before Christ humbly saying, if you will, Christ's response is, I will be clean. And don't miss this. Who needs to will it? Christ. It doesn't say God has made you clean or God wills. He says, I will. This is another moment where we see Christ setting himself up for us as God himself. And when we come to Christ, we are experiencing the love and the goodness of God himself in all of who he is. And then what does he say to the centurion? He grants his request and he marvels at his faith. And we see him compassionately heal Peter's mother-in-law. And then we read that he healed many who were oppressed by demons, casting out demons with a word and healing all who were sick. Truly, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. He isn't bothered by us. He isn't putting up with us. He delights, he delights to show compassion and to save. We love because he first loved us. To understand the heart of the Lord, we have to understand how much he loves us. And we see that here. This is our Lord. So how then do we approach him? Well, we must respond in faith. When we see this Jesus who has the power to save, who allows any and all to come to him and who desires and wills, good to those who come, the only appropriate response is for us to come and to come in faith. What marked the leper and the centurion? They both came to Jesus expecting that he could help them. They both believed that he at the very least had an authority and a power that was unparalleled, that no one else had to offer. The leper says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And I love what the centurion says. I too am a man under authority. With soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. He's saying, look, Jesus, I know that you're a man of power. I believe that. A man of authority, and while I have control of armies and and servants, you have control over the powers and the principalities and the authorities. You have the power to heal at your very word in this minute. Jesus marvels and commands healing and then commends his great faith. Our entire existence, while we live and breathe on this earth, is a fight for faith. It's a fight to believe God at His Word. It's a fight to love Him. We're told that without faith, it's impossible to please God. We all put our faith and our trust in something. It's the way we're designed. There's no way out of it. You're trusting in those pews right now that they're not going to fall from under you. You don't know. They could break. A couple of the supports are a little wobbly, but you're trusting. Faith in Christ Jesus is our recognition before our Savior that we, like these people, are in desperate need. First and foremost, in need of spiritual rebirth, forgiveness, and cleansing, Faith in Christ means that we believe he does command armies of angels, that he did create the world, and that he does have the authority and the ability to do anything we could ask or imagine. Our faith in Christ should motivate us to come to him, to ask him for all manner of things, 
to forgive us, to strengthen us for today, to help us walk through this trial or that, to bring someone to faith, to give us boldness to preach, to heal our infirmities and our ailments, to help us make his name known among the nations. I know people who pray for parking spots. (laughs) The Lord's not bothered by that. There's nothing in your day that can't be lifted up in prayer. And there's no request you could make that Christ couldn't answer. We must be people of faith. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. Faith is necessary in our approach to God. Now, that said, we have to be careful, particularly when it comes to this area of healing, that we don't take these things further than they're intended to be or miss the nuance and the graciousness of our God. Yes, faith is a necessity for our relationship with God. It's what our relationship with God is built upon. It's the way that we are saved. And yes, if we are to entreat the Lord, we must believe that He is there and He can answer and has the power to heal and save. However, we know faith can be small and weak and still powerful. Jesus says if you have faith, even like a mustard seed, you could move a mountain which means he's telling us that none of us have the size of faith even as a mustard seed because I don't see any mountains flying around on the earth. The strength of our faith is not where the power lies, but the power lies in the one that we have faith in. We also know that Jesus does not always answer the way we might expect or desire. We don't know why this is. We don't know these things. Sometimes, sometimes, James says this later, it's because we ask for wrong reasons to spend it on our own passions and desires. Sometimes it's because we are lacking some faith, but many times it's because the Lord has other plans or He's doing a better work that we don't know. The most poignant example from the Scriptures of this is when Jesus' friend Lazarus is dying. I think this is a very helpful one for us. Jesus knew He was dying, yet Jesus didn't go and save Him. Why? Because he had something better in store. By allowing Lazarus to die, he was able to raise him from the dead. Now, yes, Lazarus did get raised from the dead in that story, but there is something for us to see there. Jesus let his friend die. Jesus wept over that. Jesus saw the pain of Mary and Martha and the others as they had to deal with the loss of Lazarus. Yet Jesus allowed it to happen, not because he's cruel Not because he wasn't able, but because he knew what was needed in that situation. And the Lord is the same with us. We know that there were people in the churches that Paul and others write about who were sick, who were dying. We don't read that all of them are miraculously healed all the time. No, we read of people dealing with issues. We know Paul himself had some kind of ailment that that he prayed to be resolved that wasn't. And what did Paul learn from that? That the Lord is sufficient. We must be people of great faith, but that means that our faith is real. That means it trusts in Jesus, even if his way isn't what we would have expected or desired. Will we still follow him if we don't understand what he's doing? 
If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then you know without a shadow of a doubt, you should know because God's word says it and God's word is true, that God is working all things together for your good. That is real. If you're God's child, he is working all things together for your good. Though we may ask and not receive at times because God has other plans, we should never doubt the Lord's love for us. We can approach this tender-hearted Jesus, this wonder-working Jesus, this merciful Savior and gracious God. We can approach Him with confidence, with assurance, with expectation, knowing that all things are in His hands. Church, what a glorious Savior we have. And, and, and listen, there's one part of this passage we didn't touch, verse 4. Jesus tells this leper to tell no one but to go show himself to the priest. Why does Jesus say this? He does this a few times in the Gospels, and there's a certain amount of debate as to exactly why Jesus does this. But what seems clear is that Jesus wasn't working miracles to win favor with anyone or, or to have it be a publicity stunt. He also didn't want the wrong message to be conveyed about who he was and what he was doing and why. But for us, now in this age, we have full and free clearance to make the name and the majesty and the power of this tender yet fiercely powerful Savior known. We don't point to his miracles as, and his power as an end. We aren't seeking to make Simon the magicians out of people who are enamored with miracles, but we point to them so that people would believe that he truly does have the power to save. If you're here and you haven't come to Christ or knelt before him like this leper, know that he can take any burden that you bear. He can come alongside of you in any need, and you need only acknowledge your need for Him. And as we'll talk about more next week, in trust and faith and follow Him. There truly has never been someone like Jesus Christ. The more we spend time with Him, I pray the more you love Him. That's been true for me. Church, let's go from here marveling at our unparalleled Savior And boldly approach him in faith to see his glory go forth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for this leper and this centurion. Thank you for their faith. Thank you, Father, that you gave your spirit, you put your spirit upon them that they might come before you, that we would have this story to recount, that we could see your gracious will. Father, we ask that you would help us to feel tender-hearted, tender-hearted compassion from Christ and that we in turn would be people with tender hearts full of love full of mercy full of grace because we have been shown grace and mercy we have been forgiven of our sins thank you Lord that you care about us I pray that each of us in this room would feel that care this morning we pray all of this in the name of your son Jesus amen You've been listening to a message by Nick Kidwell, given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.